This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, January 10th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, 2022 welcomes back Capital Conversation, KOTO News goes national, G is for government, previews Telluride Town Council, and a mountain weather forecast. A new year means a new state legislative session. A new legislative session means welcoming back capital conversation. Colorado's General Assembly will gavel in on Wednesday, January 12th. KOTO Scott Franz talks about what's to come. Scott, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Hey, Julia. My pleasure. So, I mean, we should say welcome back to you for gracing the Kodo Airwaves, specifically for a capital conversation. We've heard from you in other um, ways throughout the year, but now we're getting back into the legislative swing of things with the General Assembly due to start on the on Wednesday, on January 12th. How does it feel kind of getting back into this legislative swing of things? Well, it is very exciting. This this time of year always comes way faster than I yeah, expect it to, you know, because they lawmakers, you know, haven't been just sitting around doing nothing this summer. They've um, been hard at work doing other things. But yeah, I'm I'm excited to start my this will be my fourth legislative session and um definitely some big things on the agenda coming up. Uh and with it being you know, midterm election year. Um, I think so much is going to be influenced by that. And um, I think the pace is just not going to let up uh, starting Wednesday. You mentioned this is your fourth session going into cover. How do you feel like either the way that you report on things or the way that you look at what's happening in the legislature, how has that kind of shifted now that you have a number of sessions under your belt and maybe have a little bit more of the lay of the land? Yeah, so what I'm hoping for this session is, you know, to be able to go more in-depth on, um, you know, how proposed policies are affecting or will affect people. You know, the first couple sessions, I definitely had to kind of learn, you know, how things worked and how the process worked. And, you know, there was a lot of technical stuff I had to learn the first few years. But now that I have a, a much better understanding of, you know, how bills kind of make their way through, through the legislature, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to spend a little more time, you know, even while I'm in the building doing outreach to, um, you know, to folks in, in your listening area, to people all around the state, um, you know, to talk to them about, um, you know, how legislation will impact them or, or what concerns they have about it, what, what um, you know, what they're keeping an eye on. You mentioned Obviously, the session is officially gaveling in soon, but these lawmakers haven't been sitting idle for the past months. So based off of what you're hearing so far, what do you anticipate to be some of the the issues or bills that you think are going to be kind of the, the hot topics of this session? Right. So right out of the gate, coronavirus relief is going to be the top priority once again. Uh, you know, lawmakers are convening right as Omicron cases spike. Um, you know, I've talked to them about, you know, they're taking some uh, precautions, including having rapid testing on site for anyone who wants it. Um, you know, they also spent uh, the summer uh, trying to decide how to spend a billion dollars of federal 
relief money. So those will be some of the, the very first bills. And, and a lot of them have bipartisan support because they intentionally set up these committees, you know, for, for people of both parties. So uh, things like affordable housing, uh, you know, they'll be expected to quickly adopt a, a revolving loan fund to try, to try and get projects off the ground. Um, several other, other policies like that. But the kind of a new focus that, that I hear is coming um, within the last week, you know, is, is climate policy. Um, you know, the, we just saw the devastation from the Marshall fire. Um, it's still, you know, the impact is still very um, fresh for people, especially here uh, on the front range. Um, lawmakers from that area are vowing you know, new investments in both wildfire mitigation, but also, you know, they say they want to look at, you know, more climate policy to prevent um, tragedies like this in the future. So, you know, with this being election year, I mean, I think everything is on the table um, from climate to affordable housing, mental health. I mean, just it sounds like this is going to be a very fast-paced, jam-packed session. Yeah. Well, we're definitely excited to have you be our guide through the legislative session, and we'll be hearing from you a lot more over the coming weeks and months. So, Scott, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. That was KOTO Scott Franz reporting from Denver. KOTO News, Telluride's housing crisis, and the climate went national on Monday. Marketplace's Rima Jerez has more. We're going to turn our attention to climate change for a bit. There's news out today that greenhouse gas emissions rose 6% last year after a record decline in 2020. That's according to a preliminary estimate by the Rhodium Group. A lot of that was fueled by a rise in coal power and truck traffic as the economy bounced back. But the thing is, a good amount of emissions come from us, from our homes. I'm talking about the natural gas we use when we throw our clothes in the dryer or bake a cake or cook fettuccine alfredo pasta. That kind of household energy accounts for 20% of emissions in this country. That's according to a National Academy of Sciences study. Meanwhile, housing these days is in short supply, nearly 4 million units short, according to Freddie Mac. So the question is, how do you build more houses without adding to the climate crisis? Matt Hoysh from KOTO and Telluride, Colorado explains. A crew is building homes on a hillside along a road in western Colorado. The spot will soon have 30 new affordable housing units. Delaney Young looks on from outside the construction area. It's so satisfying to see this take shape. Young is the mayor of Telluride, Colorado. The town, along with the local county, is developing the housing called Sunnyside. In part, a reference to the abundant sunlight the south-facing hillside gets, also a nod to the rooftop solar that will make these homes net zero for carbon emissions. We knew it would cost more money in the initial stages to do it in this manner, but it would have been irresponsible of us to not consider this simply because of its geographical location. Telluride is an expensive place to live, with houses in the mountain resort town selling at about $2 million on average last year, according to Telluride Consulting, a local real estate analysis company. Sunnyside will offer rentals at below market rates for the workers supporting that resort economy. Lance McDonald, the town's program director, estimates development costs increased by about 6% to completely offset its greenhouse gas emissions, reaching net zero year over year. 
which means that the project will be generating the same amount of energy that it would use on an annual basis. Essentially, the housing is still connected to the grid, but it also supplies energy from its solar panels. Given the housing shortage in the U.S. and the global climate crisis, net zero affordable housing sounds appealing. But how likely is it to take off more widely? You don't necessarily save money by reducing carbon. Kim Vermeer is a green building and sustainability consultant. Affordable housing, she says, actually uses green building practices more than market rate housing, in part because developers recognize they can reduce long-term operating costs by making the buildings energy efficient. But reducing carbon emissions can also sometimes come at a cost. There is a, something of a disconnect, and especially when the push to decarbonize pushes us to electrify. Replacing gas systems with electric ones, like heating and hot water, can help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But in a lot of places, electricity costs more than gas. Lauren Bauman is the vice president at New Ecology, a nonprofit focused on sustainable development in low-income communities. The last thing we want to do is burden affordable housing developers and owners and tenants with utility costs that they can't afford. Ideally, Bauman says, adding renewable energy like solar can compensate for those higher costs. But sometimes, she says, that's not an option, either because developers don't have the money or the site doesn't get enough sunlight. Still, even without renewables, energy-efficient homes, Bauman adds, can help with higher costs. And they can help people adapt to climate change. That's especially important for low-income communities. There's been a lot of research that's been done to show low-income populations just don't have as many options when it comes to dealing with these severe weather impacts. And so having the ability for their housing to stay habitable in the face of some of this extreme weather and, and climate challenge is also a really important piece. Back in Telluride, Mayor Young says she hopes other communities can look to Sunnyside as inspiration for their own projects. We want to all work together to not have to reinvent the wheel. We, if we have a project that works, if we have an idea that works, we want other people to be able to replicate it. Sunnyside is set to open by summer 2022, just in time for sunny skies. In Telluride, I'm Matt Hoish for Marketplace. Town Council will convene for the first council meeting of the new year on Tuesday. A state of the town address and the appointment of a new interim town manager are all on the docket. This week on G is for Government, Council Member Geneva Shawnette shares what to expect. Geneva, thanks for joining me for another installment of G is for Government. Thanks for having me, and Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you as well. Um, Town Council is coming back for their meeting on Tuesday. It's the first one of the new year. Um, and you're going to be starting off the morning at 9.30 with an executive session. So obviously we can't really touch on that um, at the moment. But then you're going to be heading into some work sessions in the morning. Can you share what those ones are going to be looking at? Yes, so our first work session is going to start at 10 a.m. And we are going to be hearing from Karen Guglielmoni about... Um, the uh, Ecology Commission's work 
plan for 2022. Uh, the Ecology Commission makes updates to this work plan annually, so we'll be discussing what they're proposing, um, and we have an action item later in the day where we um, may approve that work plan. After that, we are going to be hearing from our uh, planning director, Ron Qualls, about potential amendments to the land use code um, to that are related to cell towers. Um, there's a lot of equipment that may or may not need to be upgraded um, as cell technology advances, and we're going to hear about that. Um, and that's it for the morning. As you mentioned, so both of those in the morning are work sessions, so no decisions are going to be made. But then actually both of those items will then be addressed later in the afternoon, um, again, in the action items area of, of the agenda, where council will also be discussing the Commission for Community Assistance, Arts, and Special Events funding recommendations. Um, but those are a little bit later in the afternoon, and there's a couple things earlier um, after lunch. Uh, what are those going to be looking at? Yeah, so right after lunch, we'll have um, public comment at 1 o'clock, um, as we always do. And then um, Mayor Young will give the State of the Town address followed by a couple introductions of new staff members, uh, and then a second reading of our uh, amendments to the 2021 budget. Every uh, every year we make amendments, usually at the middle of the year and at the end of the year, to make changes to the budget um, based on whether we collected more money or less money or things cost more or less than we anticipated. Um, most of the highlights of that year-end adjustment um, ordinance are related to a large increase in um, our capital improvement fund, our real estate transfer tax. Uh, we, we, there's, you know, the real estate market is still very hot. Uh, we don't know how long it's going to last, but we definitely collected more money in that category than we anticipated at the beginning of the year. Um, so we'll be voting on that for a second time. And then, like you said, we will vote on uh, approving uh Proposals that we heard work session information on in the morning, um, a brief manager's report. I will mention that uh, at this point, having counted January through November of sales tax collected in 2021, we're already at um, in excess of $8.5 million, which would be a which is a record um, sales tax year for the town of Telluride, and we haven't even counted December yet. So really strong numbers closing out um, 2021. After that, you're going to be going back into executive session to have some interviews with interim town managers to serve in that position while you search for a more permanent position. And then you're going to be bopping back out of executive session um, regarding that issue. What is that going to look like? We will go into executive session and interview um, candidates for an interim acting town manager. Um, we have, we are conducting a formal nationwide search for a permanent, um, town manager for the town of Telluride. Uh, but in the meantime, we wanted to hire somebody to fill in, um, that sort of gap period because these, uh, these recruiting processes take a while and wanted to make sure that we have somebody who can oversee the operations of the town in the meantime. Um, so we will be interviewing those candidates. Uh, in executive session, and then when we come out of executive session, we anticipate put appointing one of them um, to move forward as we, we would really love to have someone in this leadership position in the town uh, as soon as possible. 
Yeah, definitely some some big topics to be discussing for town council. Um, Geneva, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes and we will see you on Zoom or on the radio tomorrow. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Julia. Nothing's fun like family fun, especially if you can get healthy doing it. This weekend, Tri-County Health Network will host a day full of activities in Norwood to celebrate the community's health and work towards vaccinating the region. There will be a walk-in vaccine clinic, insurance, assistance, free food, and other activities. The Family Fun Vaccination Day will take place in Norwood on Saturday, January 15th from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Lone Cone Library. After a COVID-induced quiet Christmas, music is back in the Box Canyon. Beyond the Groove Music recently announced the lineup for the 2022 Club Red Winter Music Concert Series. Starting on January 28th, Jamestown Revival with Mipso and Robert Ellis will play the Conference Center in Mountain Village. The Motet and Colin Miller will take the stage on March 19th, and Anders Osborne and Jackie Green will close out the series on March 23rd. Brent Denon was scheduled to kick off the series this week, but the show was canceled due to COVID concerns. When it comes to COVID protocol, all concertgoers must be fully vaccinated or have proof of a negative COVID test. Masks are required per county public health order. Last Thursday, Congress commemorated the year anniversary of the January 6th riot in Washington, D.C., The day was filled with speeches, including a rousing one by U.S. Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado. KVNF's Kate Redmond reports. Some U.S. senators were silent on Thursday on the anniversary of the storming of the Capitol at the behest of the former president, and some Republicans continue to perpetuate revisionist history. Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, however, spoke forcefully from the podium on what happened. We had an insurrection here a year ago that could have very easily turned into a conflagration if it had not been for the incredible bravery of the Capitol Police. They kept this place from being burned down. They kept people from getting killed. They lost their lives on that day and in subsequent days because of the trauma that they were exposed to. And there are people here who are claiming that they were acting like tourists. That's a really big lie, too. This was an incredibly dangerous situation. Bennett, toward the end of his speech, pointed to the strategy of those who would deny the seriousness of the attack on the Capitol on that day a year ago and the attacks that are happening now in state capitals in at least 20 states. It was assaulted on behalf of people that came summoned here by the president who claimed that the election had been stolen from him, who was perpetrating a big lie about what had happened in the election. There are more than 400 bills nationwide in the name of that big lie, making it harder for the American people to vote, making it harder for them to register, making it harder for people to vote early or to vote by mail because of a myth, because of a lie slashing the number of polling places and drop boxes. Colorado continues to have successful vote by mail numbers and the second highest voter turnout of any state in the nation. For KVNF, I'm Kate Redmond. The ongoing drought in the Colorado River Basin means some will have to use less water, thanks to a federal mandate starting this month. In Arizona, where the cuts will be felt the most, it means a stronger reliance on water stored underground. 
but it's not a long-term solution. KUNC's Alex Hager has more. In Arizona, where the land is so often defined by the desert, there's plenty of water if you just know where to look. Is there groundwater under our feet right now? Yes. How far? Um, I'm going to say about 200 feet. I'm in a suburban area of Phoenix with Marvin Glotfelty. He's a fourth-generation Arizonan and a hydrogeologist who's worked on more than 1,000 wells, the kind that retrieves the water beneath our feet. If you had a fish tank and you filled it with sand and then filled that sand, poured water until it went halfway up and you could see, look through the glass, and you could see the, the little pebbles, the little grains in there, and there was water in between them. That's what it looks like. And the water between those grains, some of it has been down there for 11,000 years since the Ice Age, but some of it is pumped in by humans who use underground aquifers to store excess water. The problem is, right now, it's being taken out faster than it's put back in. From my technical background, I'd tell you that it's a lot of uh, water providers are pretty close to the edge, pretty close to running out sometimes, and that's really concerning. As Arizona's share from the Colorado River is reduced due to drought, they'll have less excess to store underground and will lean more on what they can store. We should recognize now, as we do with the Colorado River, that we have to take action before it's too late. Kathleen Ferris has made groundwater her life's work, writing some of Arizona's foundational laws on the matter in the early 1980s and later running the state's water resources department. We're still taking more groundwater out than is replenished. And since groundwater is a finite supply, ultimately, if you do that for over a long period of time, you won't have that resource to rely on. If people could only see the groundwater supply shrinking like they can the bathtub rings left by dropping water levels in Lake Mead, she says, they might be more concerned. But until then... It's a concept that's really gotten out of hand. It has become the go-to mechanism for developing. Ferris says new neighborhoods are built on the promise that they can rely on groundwater for 100 years. But she's skeptical. We will get to a tipping point at some point where there won't be that, those renewable water supplies for, to buy to replenish the groundwater pumped. But, she says, that hasn't stopped developers. These big master plan communities and these big developments, the developers don't stay ar around for 100 years and manage what's going on. They, they, they sell the land and they move on. And who is stuck with the problem? the city or the water company that serves that area and the people who live in that area. As for the developers, they see things differently. Well, it is sustainable for residential growth. Spencer Camps works on legal issues for the Arizona Home Builders Association. He says over the years, new homes have actually helped Arizona to use water more sustainably. And the two reasons that we use the same amount of water as we did in 57 is because of residential growth and conservation. Homes, he says, use less water than agriculture. And rules are in place requiring residential areas to put water back. When homes are built on farmland and we retire that ag use and that ag pumping, which is unreplenished, we use less water. But with Phoenix expected to grow by about a million people in the next decade, Kathleen Ferris says you can't have it both ways. It's why she's calling for updates to the groundwater laws she helped to write. You can't just rely on something you did 40 years ago to solve everything. You've got to look at now the situation and 
figure out what to do next. And that's where we are. We're in the figuring out what to do next phase. Which comes at a critical time. Drought has already forced mandatory cutbacks for some parts of Arizona using water from the Colorado River. And with climate change, water experts say even more cuts are likely to come. I'm Alex Hager in Phoenix. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low around 20 degrees. Tuesday should be partly sunny during the day and mostly clear at night with a high around 40 degrees and a low around 20. Wednesday expects sunny skies with a high in the mid-40s. Wednesday night should be mostly clear with a low around 25. This has been the news for Monday, January 10th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hi, this is Kathy from Strong Start, here to tell you about our upcoming Early Childhood Recruitment event. In 2017, San Miguel County passed the Early Childhood Mill Levy, sending a clear message that our community prioritizes our child care system. Come learn about all the benefits Strong Start has implemented and all the reasons why you should join the field of early childhood education. Get your early childhood coursework paid for. Increase your salary with biannual grants for teachers and work within our supportive early childhood cohort while making a positive impact on the children in our community. Whether you are a current high school student curious about becoming a preschool teacher, or a parent interested in child development, or maybe you're searching for a fulfilling and life-changing career, this event is for you. So join us virtually on Wednesday, January 12th from 6 to 7 p.m. to discuss which early childhood pathway is right for you. For more information and to register for the events, please visit our website, strongstartstrongcommunity.org. Once you register, you'll receive a link to this event. Again, visit strongstartstrongcommunity.org. We're looking forward to seeing you there. Thanks, Kodo. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Kodo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.